0: The job of a D-miner is normally considered men's work. You know, it's very physical, it's very dangerous. Uh, it's commonly ex-military men that, that are D-miners. And yet here is this all-female team digging up bombs, which I thought was was very cool, not only because they're women, but also because they're Yazidis. And Yazidis are an, an ethno-religious minority, and they were specifically targeted by ISIS. Thousands were killed and also a lot of the women were sold as sex slaves. It was a a genocide, so this is their way of of saying they will not be defeated.
1: Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley and in this episode our guest is a journalist who has had three features shortlisted for this year's British Journalism Awards. In one, she meets women who clear landmines in Lebanon. In another, she talks to female footballers tackling France's on-pitch hijab ban. While in the third, she reports on the conditions endured by asylum seekers in the controversial Napier barracks. Now, with this kind of portfolio, you might expect Jessie Williams to be an experienced veteran hack, but she's actually a young freelance foreign reporter in the early stages of her career. I began our conversation by asking Jessie to explain how she got her break in journalism.
0: Well, I've, I've always loved writing, even when I was a child. Um, I, I always joke that I'm much better on paper, <laughs> I can just like express myself a lot clearer and more articulately, um, which, which explains why I'm a print journalist and not broadcast journalist. Um, I started a blog when I was a teenager, I, I wrote mainly about art and culture because I was really um, passionate about art. But as I started reading more and more journalism, I realised I wanted to write more hard-hitting pieces. I always loved reading the foreign news pages in in the Sunday newspapers or the in-depth kind of magazine pieces by journalists like Marie Colvin and Christina Lamb, who I know you've you've also had on, on the podcast. I've always been a nosy person, which is kind of quite a, you know, It's cliche, I'm sure all journalists say that, but I do genuinely love asking questions. Yeah, so I guess it's the perfect job for me.
1: What were your first experiences of doing journalism?
0: I did a lot of internships, even before I went to university, um, because I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I just wasn't sure what kind of journalist, so I kind of dipped my toes into lots of different types. So I interned at British Vogue and the Daily Telegraph, The Observer, and also local newspapers as well, like the Hackney Gazette, and also a French news website in Paris called The Local France. So that helped me to gain kind of lots of varied experience and also led me to realise that I loved writing features. And it was while at university that I started pitching ideas to different publications. I did a year abroad, and I managed to get a short article in in The Guardian about the importance of the continuation of the Erasmus scheme after Brexit. And I think the first piece that I was actually paid for was, uh, it was for my final major project at university, and it was a long feature looking at domestic abuse refuges, which was then published in Refinery29, and, and I was paid for that, which was was really cool. And after university, I did a paid internship at the Financial Times. And since then, I've been kind of freelancing on and off, slowly building a a portfolio and also cultivating relationships with different editors freelancing is it is tough i do love the freedom and flexibility that you get being able to create your own ideas and writing for a range of publications not just one obviously there are downsides um like there's difficulties with with getting paid on time but to be honest i've I've never had major problems with that
1: tell us about the kind of stories that you go looking for the kind of stories that excite you, interest you, the ones that you're developing a, a niche for as it were.
0: I'm really interested in telling stories that h- highlight injustice and also gives a platform to those who are who are usually kind of ignored or misrepresented. So a lot of those stories tend to have a human rights element or a, a social justice element but i'm also really interested more and more on how conflict impacts people particularly women countless studies have shown that women are disproportionately impacted by war and you have interviewed christina Lam and her her recent book is is a harrowing look at how how rape is used as a weapon of war so it's it's those stories i was actually in armenia recently uh, reporting on the psychological impacts of the Nagorno-Karabakh War one year after the ceasefire. And even in the aftermath of war, it's it's women who are most vulnerable to being exploited or also just things like they're normally the ones that have to keep the family together or, you know, even provide for their families after their husbands have died fighting. And that takes a huge toll on, on you know, their mental health. So it's, it's telling stories like that. But I'm also really interested in telling stories of hope and resilience and I don't know if it's obvious but in every story I write I always try to find the hope that's that's hidden away somewhere even in particularly bleak stories that there does tend to be a hopeful aspect to it and I think that's important as well because it's very easy as a journalist, to portray people solely as victims. And I, I don't want to do that. People are, are much more than just victims. So I'll focus on people as, as survivors, as agents of change, or, you know, just them as as human beings. I feel like I've met so many incredibly strong characters that I've been lucky enough to, to talk to and actually really learn from as well.
1: You've had three stories shortlisted for the British Journalism Award, stories that have been published either by Open Democracy or by The Guardian. Can you just talk us through each of those, what you particularly liked about reporting those stories, but maybe also the the challenges with, with, with each of them?
0: I think the first one I'd like to talk about is the, the women who clear landmines in the Middle East. That was for the Observer magazine, and that was really really interesting to um to work on that story came about because firstly i watched the documentary into the fire which follows a group of extremely brave Yazidi women who clear landmines and ieds left behind by isis in in northern iraq and the protagonist in that film is a woman called hannah kaida and she led the team which i later learned was very unusual because the job of a D-minor is normally considered men's work. You know, it's very physical, it's very dangerous. Uh, it's commonly ex-military men that, that are D-minors. And yet here is this all-female team digging up bombs, which I thought was was very cool, not only because they're women, but also because they're Yazidis. And um, Yazidis are an, an ethno-religious minority, and they were specifically targeted by ISIS thousands were killed, and also a lot of the women were sold as sex slaves. It was a, a genocide. So this is their way of, of saying they will not be defeated. So I think I, I tweeted about that incredible film, and I think the tweet was seen by someone that works at MAG, uh, the Minds Advisory Group, who the Yazidi women in Iraq work for. And he got in touch to ask if I wanted to see their demining work in Lebanon. the The condition was that I was to get a commission in a national newspaper. So I, I managed to to get a commission, and then I went over there last September to meet the deminers over there and see them in action. I focused on the minefields in southern lebanon along the border with israel which is highly contaminated from previous wars there between the two neighbors i even got to walk through a a couple of minefields as well and see the landmines up close and also watch them detonate them from a distance which was absolutely amazing yeah it was incredible to just see it firsthand i think that's what's really important as a journalist to gauge the atmosphere and talk to your contributors in person. And also just wearing that heavy body armor. I honestly don't know how they do it. I was only wearing it for an hour or so. And I was so sweaty. And in those temperatures, it's just it's incredibly arduous work. So yeah, it was really invaluable to to go there and meet them and see what they're doing. And then I got back from Lebanon, I did a few interviews over Zoom talking to other women who work as deminers in other countries around the Middle East. So I actually spoke to Hannah Kaida, who works in northern Iraq, as well as someone in Gaza who worked for the UN Mine Action Service there. I always knew I wanted to focus on the women, especially because they live in quite conservative countries and they're earning money by doing this uh, very dangerous, very physical job but they also face a lot of obstacles and criticism off the minefield, you know, because they're women. One of them said to me, um, her mother made her swear not to tell her relatives or neighbors uh, about her job for fear of judgment. Another one said her male colleague kept asking her why she wasn't at home looking after her children. So they they tend to be underestimated by their male colleagues, but a program officer also told me that the female miners normally do a better job than the men on the team. Um, So I thought that was was really interesting. And I was also keen on showing how important it is to have women be a part of the peace building process uh, of helping to rebuild their land and their communities. You're not only empowering them financially, but also socially. These people are really looked up to in their community because they're helping return land to the people. Farmers can grow their crops on it. Houses can be built. Children can play without their parents worrying that they're going to be blown up. So, uh, yeah, it's such an important story. And I think having the, the gender angle was fascinating. And, yeah, it was a really exciting piece to work on.
1: And then you wrote a piece about an all-female football team in France, tell us about that.
0: This, this story was really such a, a joy to write. These, these girls are, are really incredible. The story came about because a photographer friend of mine, Julia Frigiri, um, she got in touch saying she had this idea because she's based in Paris and so are the hijabus, which is this group of hijab wearing female footballers who have formed a collective to campaign against the French Football Federation's ban on players wearing the hijab in official club matches so she wanted to profile this group and she asked me if if I'd like to to write a piece on them unfortunately that was that was during COVID so and the borders were closed so I couldn't go over to Paris I would have loved to so I did the interviews over Zoom and she went to a couple of their training sessions and photographed them and and went to their kind of big football match at the end of the month so she watched them play and, and talk to them as well and I, I spoke to them about what the hijab means to them and also about their passion for football um, and, and why they're taking part in this campaign so yeah that was that was really really interesting it was quite a simple one to write and we got a commission fairly quickly which was really great it's also nice to collaborate with another person on a story because as a freelancer you do spend quite a lot of time on your own yeah, and the photos turned out brilliantly as well. so yeah, it was great.
1: And then the third story that has been shortlisted uh, is closer to home, isn't it, Jesse? Um, near barracks, quite controversial uh, detention center, is that what we call it?
0: It's asylum seeker housing it's it's a former military barracks in Kent that was being and, and still is being used to house asylum seekers. And it's kind of like initial basic accommodation while they have their claims processed. So a decision has, ha- hasn't been made on on whether they stay or whether they're being deported. And the Napier Barracks it hit headlines at the start of this year because of a massive COVID outbreak that happened there. And it came after numerous warnings by public health officials and bodies saying that the accommodation was not suitable you know, it was run down, it was filthy, hygiene was very poor, and there was no way to practice social distancing. I mean, it sounds awful anyway, but this was also during a global pandemic. So it was really bewildering why the Home Office was using Napier Barracks and why they were ignoring all of these warnings. So I'd I'd read a lot of news reports about it, especially when the outbreak happened. And I really wanted to do an in-depth piece, looking at what life inside the barracks was like for these asylum seekers. You've got to remember that many of them had experienced torture, detention and other forms of exploitation. So, you know, living inside these military barracks, not being able to leave, even before the outbreak there were security guards on the gates, there was barbed wire fences and also a curfew. So, so these conditions also risk re-traumatising many of them. So I, I wanted to look at how, this impacted not only their physical health but also their mental health as well, um, so how I, I got in touch with a few asylum seekers who had stayed at Napier Barracks and also one who was still inside at the time and I, I Got in touch with them through a couple of charities that help asylum seekers in the UK. One of them was Care for Calais, which does amazing work, and they put me in touch with those people. And then I was able to to talk to them about it. They sent me photos, um, and videos, and you know it was really awful to hear you know what they had been through. You know some of them have witnessed other asylum seekers trying to commit suicide inside the barracks because of the you know the awful conditions i also spoke to a lawyer representing some of the asylum seekers she was arguing in a court case that the barracks breached their human rights and it was later found that the accommodation was unlawful and yet it's still open and i think there are even plans for military barracks to to be used in the future as as asylum seeker accommodation so i think this really shows the lengths that the home office will go to to appear to be tough on migration, um, because they think that's what their voters want. And this story, it was really, it took a while to do. It was just, you know, there was a lot of research, a lot of people to speak to. It was very fast moving as well. You know, I I did some FOI requests and there was lots of different elements to it. And my editor at Open Democracy, I want to mention her, Caroline Malloy, because she was brilliant and really helped to make the piece a lot better. And I think editors are kind of the unsung heroes of journalism. They should get a bit more credit. I think.
1: Jesse, I'm I'm just noticing that in in many of these stories, there is often an NGO or a, another agency that is helping you get access. Which which is is great. How how do you though ensure that you try and remain as independent as as possible?
0: That is a good question, and it's something I have thought about a lot, and I've I've also written about it in um I, I write a newsletter, and I have written one latest newsletter about that. I do think as a young foreign freelance reporter, there is there's only so many ways to get out there and to, to go abroad and to write these kind of stories that I want to write. Having good relationships with NGOs, I think is is kind of key to being able to, I mean, not only get access to people and get access to to areas that you want to see, like walking through a minefield, and also speaking to, you know, Sometimes vulnerable people who you wouldn't really be able to access if you didn't have an NGO that was supporting you and helping you to to you know speak to those different people. I do think that if you stick to your kind of principles, you you know you have a kind of clear set of of, of values and you don't let anything cloud your judgment. I think I think it's okay to say. Yes. And I think also being transparent about it is also important as well. I do always also make sure I talk to other experts and NGOs as well within the piece. So it's not just like focused on one NGO.
1: You mentioned your newsletter uh, on Substack where you write about your reporting and and the challenges and the opportunities. What, What function does that perform for you? That
0: just started actually just for fun. Like I said before, I I really love writing and a lot of my work is quite, well, it's quite serious and sometimes I like to just write for the sake, n- not for the sake of writing, but just because, you know, I, I don't know, I like to, it's quite nice to just have an outlet to to write about what you want and not have the pressure of oh you know is this going to get a commission or you know is this going to impact or create change you know I I just want to write because I I love writing and because I'm also writing about topics that I hope other people will be able to relate to and I hope it it resonates in some way with other journalists and and non-journalists as well yeah it's also a way of like a bit of behind the scenes of what goes on as well which i think as a as a young journalist you know starting out i think i would have liked to have uh, read how it all works really i mean i'm always learning so i think it is a good way to just reflect on on the writing process and try to make yourself become a better journalist through that as well
1: any other advice for early career journalists would be journalists, people listening to this podcast thinking, wow, I love the stories that Jesse writes. I would love to uh, write those kind of stories, reporting those kind of issues, making that kind of difference. What would be your advice?
0: I think my main piece of advice would be to Be persistent. Don't give up. It can be really demoralizing when you're sending out all these pictures for stories you really believe in, and you get no responses from editors, or you just seem to get rejection after rejection. It happens to us all, um, so don't let it put you off. I would also say another piece of advice would be to have an area or a a beat that you're really passionate about, and you can build up knowledge and contacts with organisations and experts within that specific area. I think that then helps you to to stand out to editors and helps you to get commissioned more easily, whilst also building up you know stronger relationships with editors. That's also key because they get so many pictures in their own inbox that if they know you or your work then they're more likely to go with your pitch and also just networking really helps as well not only with editors but also with other freelancers photographers you never know who you might work with on a story in the future it's also nice to have someone to talk to about work because as a freelancer working from home every day it can get quite lonely so building up a network is is really great just to have people to chat to that are going through similar things to you um, there's also great resources for freelancers out there as well um there's the rory peck trust there's the dart center they run workshops on trauma and resilience which i recently participated in and that was really really helpful just in terms of not only how to look after yourself when reporting but also how to look after your contributors, um, especially if you're interviewing vulnerable people, which, you know, I think is really important. So uh, yeah, I think that's my my kind of top tips.
1: Excellent, thank you. And are you able to tell us what, what are you working on right now? Are, are you, have you got a, a story that you're in the middle of right now?
0: COVID permitting, I'm hoping to travel to Iraq, to um, Northern Iraq very soon with Julia Frigeri, the photographer that I worked with previously on a piece. And we're hoping to speak to some young women in IDP camps in Kurdistan who are using sport to empower themselves and to help them reclaim public space within Iraq. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed that goes well.
1: You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley. Thanks for tuning in.